Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Rita McGrath, uh, and my guest this week is Bjarte Bogsnes. Did I pronounce that properly? Perfect. Thank okay, you. Good. Um, and so Bjarte, uh, among many other wonderful attributes, is a finance guy who also gets HR, <laughs> which is not a normal combination. Uh, he spent a, much, a very long career with a number of companies, but most recently at Equinor, which is the new name of the company formerly known as Statoil. Um, and it's Norway's sovereign um, oil and gas producer, among other things. And I'm going to see if I can get him to talk about some of the changes they've made organizationally. Uh, but one of the other things that Bjarte is very well known for is a concept called beyond the budgeting which is a mechanism for dealing with some of the worst aspects of the budgeting process as we've come to know it. And just a couple of statistics while we're, while we're kicking things off. And he comes to us, by the way, from Norway. So, uh, so we're having an international uh, event today. Um, so 25,000 dollars, 25,000 hours, uh, no, sorry, 25,000 man days in budgeting per billion dollars of revenue in the US, 25. And that's 25,000 days of human life just on budgets. Um, and that budgeting really in many companies, it's like an elevator ride, I think you call it, which is, you know, the guys at the front line have to come up with their numbers. Uh, but the guys at headquarters want their numbers by December. So the guys at the next level down get their numbers by October. And so it, so it goes. And so by the time you get to the actual places where somebody knows what's going on, <laughs> there's just, you know, it's, it's nine months before the actual decisions get made. So anyway, welcome, welcome. And uh, feel free yeah. to say anything that I haven't, uh, haven't mentioned <laughs> so far. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so let's start off with um, what, what got you started on Beyond Budgeting? And you use the example of um, a traffic light, which I think is a brilliant example. I've happily cited you on that concept many times. Yeah. I'll, I'll come back to that, but okay. uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's in, it was in no way given that I should sit there today and talk about uh, beyond budgeting. And um, uh, I love this quote from Douglas Adams, uh, and he said that I may not have gone where I intended to go, but I think I ended up where I needed to be because. Uh, <laughs> My, my career, well, my, my, my first career plan was actually the military. Mm. And I spent a year at the military school and practiced as a sergeant the year after before I realized that that was not my thing. I got an overdose of command and control. So I went for business studies in, in, instead and uh, joined Statoil in 1983. Uh, and guess where? In the corporate budget department, where I became the manager the year after. So I've been uh, heading up more budget processes in my life than I want to be reminded about. Um, and so has the former CEO of uh, Equinor, Elda Set, because he was my boss at the time. Anyway, uh, 10 years later, I was um, asked to uh, take up the um, head of finance position in a, in a new company where Statoil had an, an ownership, Borealis Petrochemicals, Europe's largest at the time, headquartered in Copenhagen. And uh, we started operations uh, March 1, 1994. And it didn't take many days before people came to us and asked, where is the budget for 1994? And uh, we agreed, of course, we have to work on the budget, which we did on top of everything else you have to do when you're setting up a new company, recruiting people, um, uh, setting up systems, moving to Copenhagen with your family, and so on and so on. But sometimes in June, that budget for 1994 was finished. And I think it took two days before the question came, what about the budget for 1995, right? <laughs> it's already summer, <laughs> we are late. And we agreed, started to work on that. And that was finished sometimes in, in the fall. And by that time, we were pretty exhausted, knackered. So the only energy we had left, we spent at the hotel outside of Copenhagen. And the purpose of that day was continuous improvement. Right? How can we improve the budgeting process? So we spent this day on completely unimportant issues. Um, shall we move this column from here to here in order to simplify? Shall we stop asking for this number in order to simplify? And towards the um, afternoon, as we were about to move another column, we suddenly heard from a guy down in the corner. He'd been quite silent the whole day. Suddenly he said, what if we don't budget at all? The room became dead quiet. Everybody turned around. Looked at the guy, nobody said anything, but I think we were all thinking the same. This guy probably needs a vacation. 
Uh, and that was it. But that comment turned out to be a kind of defining moment, number one, on this, on this journey. Because half a year later, we realized that the synergies that we had gotten out of, this was a merger, um, gotten out of this, it was not enough. We needed more. And uh, as you will know, the big thing in the 90s was business process re-engineering, right? Turn every stone and look for a better way. And I was asked to head up something called management effectiveness. And I went to the uh, CFO, uh, who I reported to, and asked uh, management effectiveness. What do you mean and what do you expect? And he just smiled. And then he looked at me and he said, Bjarte, I expect the unexpected. That was the mandate we got. So I went back to my team, shared this with them. And it didn't take long before that comment from the guy in the corner came back. Um, of course, we knew this wasn't a, a very optimal process, but kind of kicking it out, unthinkable until now. So we went back to the CFO and, and said that we want to kick out the budget. And he said, well, that sounds interesting, but what shall we then do instead? And we had to admit, we don't know. Maybe you shall go and find out, was his message. message. So that's what we did. So we started to search for an alternative to traditional budgeting and search in 1995. That was not Google, right? That was calling people, going to the library, discussing. And that's what we did. Uh, talked, discussed, uh, couldn't find anything. Uh, read a lot. A um, little glimmer of hope. Uh, we read an article where it said that Volvo kicks out the budget, went up to their headquarters in Sweden. Uh, not that impressed. Um, mm. Uh, they actually, today, they have done some very impressive things. But back then, uh, we, we were after something bigger. Continued to search, um, couldn't find anything. And we were this close to going back to our CFO and, 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 and to tell him that there is no alternative. Before, there came another defining moment. There was a guy asking, why do we budget? What's the purpose of a budget? And that simple question turned out to kind of... Uh, cracked it all. Uh, that solved it all. And uh, I'll come back to how a bit later. But um, uh, from 1996, we were operating without traditional budgets and it worked wonderful. So cost actually came down. So this was 96. In uh, 98, I moved to HR. Um, great experience uh, before I returned to Statoil at the time in 2002, working as corporate controller for our international business. But my hobby at the time, that was to pester my colleagues with the stupidity of the budgeting um, that we were doing. And looking back, I don't think I was very diplomatic. But uh, anyway, it took some time, three years. But in 2005, we went together to the executive committee and proposed not just to kick out the budget, but uh, uh, because now this has become bigger. It has become more about changing the way we were leading and managing. And we got a yes. And since that day, I have been working full-time on this stuff. And today, I'm, spend, I'm still 100% employed by Equinor, but I spend roughly half of my time uh, outside of the company doing, for instance, things like, uh, like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and along the way, in 98, the Beyond Budgeting uh, Roundtable were born, uh, network of companies interested, um, and I've been chairman for this for the last uh, 15 years, I guess. Well, it was Jeremy Hope, right, who was one of the Yes, and Robin Fraser, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And both Fantastic now. people, yes. No, long, no longer yeah. with us. No longer with us, unfortunately. So you uh, have a great book. I will just do a little promo here, um, okay. which, is, which is really a very interesting read. And what strikes me as I was revisiting the book prior to this conversation is how far ahead you were of the things we're talking about now. Um, you, you know, we're hearing, like Gary Hamill has a wonderful book on, on banishing bureaucracy, and he uses some of the same examples you were referring to, but you were doing this, that book was 2016, I think. And the first edition was, when did that come out? At 2008. 2008, yeah. So yeah. Mm. easily a decade before people were really paying attention to these things. That's, that's a great story. <laughs> So, um, so lay out the lay out the principles for us then. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, beyond budgeting is a somewhat misleading name because the purpose is not necessarily to get rid of budgets. The purpose is to create organizations that are more adaptive, more flexible, more dynamic, and more human. And in order to do that, we need to change traditional management. 
And what do we find at the core of traditional management? We find not just the budgeting process, but the budgeting mindset. Mm. So that's where the name is coming from. But this is, you know, this is business agility. Everybody's talking about business agility. And that word didn't exist uh, when, when, when we were born as, as beyond budgeting in, in back in 98. So, um, uh, so it is a quite a, a comprehensive, uh, holistic leadership and management model. There are six leadership principles and six uh, management process principles. Um, if you look at the leadership principles, they are actually not that unique. We talk about uh, purpose, autonomy, uh, transparency as important principles. But there are many other communities out there in the leadership uh, sphere uh, advocating the same. Um, but very often they haven't reflected much on what kind of management processes mm. do you need to activate these, uh, these, uh, these words. And likewise, there's a lot of great stuff on management processes out there, but they have they haven't reflected on what kind of leadership must underpin this. Mm -hmm. And in Beyond Budgeting, we are trying to address both. And we are extremely focused on creating a coherence here between what we preach on leadership and what we practice in our management processes. Because the world is full of examples of lack of coherence, right? Like the classical one that, uh, oh, we, I mean, we have so uh, uh, wonderful employees on board and we would be nothing without you and we trust you so much. But not that much. Of course, we need detailed travel budgets. Are you crazy? I mean, yeah, hypocrisy. The words become hollow, right? So there has to be a, a, a consistency, a coherence here. So in a way, beyond budgeting, is can be about organizational transformation. But if that is too big, uh, at least initially, it can be about some, some, something a little bit more smaller, less scary. It can be about finest process improvement that can move into something bigger afterwards. Mm -hmm. And the key to that finest process Im improvement around the budgeting process is exactly the question that came up in Borealis, why do we budget? Mm -hmm. Because that is a question with three different answers. Companies use budgets to set targets, financial targets, sales targets, production targets. At the same time, the budget shall be a kind of forecast of what next year can look like in terms of cash flow, financial capacity. And last but not least, the budget is a resource allocation mechanism, handing out bags of money to the organization on OPEX and on CAPEX. And it might seem very efficient to solve all these three in one process and one set of numbers. But that's also the problem, because I mean, we all know what happens if we ask for good revenue numbers, and everybody knows that the numbers I'm sending upstairs will come back to me as a target, maybe with a bonus attached. Or when it comes to asking for good uh, cost or investment numbers, everybody knows that this is my only shot at getting access to resources for next year. And uh, somebody might also recall that 20% cuts of last year. And that insight and that memory might do something to numbers submitted. Fortunately, there's a very simple solution. We should separate these three purposes into three different processes because they are different things. A target is an aspiration. It's what we want to happen. While a forecast is an expectation. It's what we think will happen, whether we like what we see or not. And resource allocation is about optimizing scarce resources in order to get to where we want to be. And because we have separated, we can start to improve each one in ways impossible when it was all bundled in one number and um, one process. So then you can have great discussions about how can you set more intelligent, um, more igniting targets and ambitions? How can you get the politics out of forecasting? Um, and how can you have a more dynamic uh, and, and again, intelligent resource allocation instead of sitting in the for the last year and, and handing out all, all your resources? So, so, um, and, and the beauty with doing it this way is that when people say that it's impossible to operate without a budget, then our response would be that, well, here we still do what the budget tried to do for us. But because we are separated, uh, we, ca we can do each one in a better way. But just as important, those discussions I, 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 I mentioned about how can we improve can lead you into those bigger beyond budgeting discussions. What really motivates 
the knowledge worker when it comes to target setting. Mm. And sometimes there's actually no target at all, but that's a different discussion. Uh, resource allocation, again, do we need detailed travel budgets if we say we trust people? So many organizations use this as a, as a quite a nice backdoor into some bigger uh, discussion. So you can move from this finance process mm -hmm. focus into a more transformational focus. Wow. Not everybody does. Somebody stopped at the process improvement. That's fine. I mean, you get benefits from that. But the real big benefits lies in continuing these discussions. Uh, that is fascinating. Finance as a change agent. <laughs> You're not going to do that everywhere. <laughs> to, together with HR. Then right. we are talking dynamite. Then we are mm -hmm. talking dynamite. Mm -hmm. That's that's. Fascinating. That's fascinating. So um, I love the idea of separating these things out. One of the things I've observed in organizations is that you have these major disconnects between your strategy process, which when it's done right, it's pulling you into the future, your budgeting process, which is so often just anchored in the past, right? You know, so where does this year's budget start? It starts with last year. And then, you implement <clears throat> and then you've got your, uh, indeed, your project approval process, which is you talk about in terms of resource allocation, and then the people process, the whole HR. And often those things are completely at odds with each other. Um, and you seem to have cracked that, that, that disconnect. Uh, I believe we have. And I would add one more thing on that list, uh, risk management, which is also very often treated separately. Mm. And what we have done in Equinor is that, first of all, these functions behind here, uh, strategy, finance, risk, HR, we talk together, we cooperate. And we have designed a process in Equinor that we call ambition to action. Mm -hmm. It take us, take us quite seamlessly from translating strategy into strategic objectives then we are addressing risk. Then we are looking at, at actions to take us towards these obje objectives, objectives to mitigate risk. And very often it's one and the same thing. Then we are looking at, um, uh, at measurement indicators that can indicate that we are moving uh, towards these, uh, these objectives. So um, ambition to action, we've had that process for, uh, for uh, uh, yeah, since we started out in 2005. And it very much replaced um, the uh, the uh, budgeting as the as the management uh, uh, process, and we are very happy with it. So you you actually use leading indicators then, because what well, I find in so many companies is they they drive their future behavior by looking at what their past results were. It's all lagging uh, indicators. It's not uh, oriented. Oh, uh, I mean, of course, we 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 are trying to. To, to find leading aid indicators like everybody else. But there is one important learning here, and that is that, you know, we used to call these KPIs. Mm -hmm. When we say KPI, we tend to forget that the I in KPI stands for indicator, but they are indicating something that they are not necessarily telling the full truth. They are not called KPTs, key performance truth. They are called key performance indicators, right? And we need to remember that. So we actually have renamed KPIs to to, to indicators and tried actually to kind of de-emphasize the importance of them a little bit simply because, I mean, they, they are useful, but I have spent or wasted too many years of my life searching for that perfect KPI and, and it doesn't exist. Don't misunderstand me. There are good indicators. Combinations of them can, can, can make them even better, but you need something more around this. That is why Ambition to action is not ju just about indicators. Mm -hmm. It's just as much about these uh, strategy objectives, risks, actions, together with the indicators to give you a more complete picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the principles clearly is that you don't just get in a room once a year and do this, right? It's an ongoing process. So perhaps you could speak to that because I think a lot of companies struggle with it. You know, the, the, the oh my God, it's the budget season and we, no. everything stops. I don't do anything no. else to budgets for two months no. out of the year. No. Yeah, no, that's also a very important part of this uh, process because if you think about it, the, the, the fiscal year, typically January, December, it is an accounting construct. And it is very often an, a completely artificial construct from a pure business point of view. Right? So we need processes and a rhythm here that is more business-driven, uh, event-driven, and less calendar-driven. Mm -hmm. So we encourage the organization to update their own ambition to action when there is a need for it, when stuff happens, that the unit itself deem kind of, uh, uh, yeah, deem as necessary to, 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 uh, to make an up update. So this is a very living thing. And um, 
this also applies for our forecasting. So we don't do rolling forecasting with a fixed quarterly frequency. We do it dynamically, so update when something happens. And at corporate level, we can tap into this information when we need it for our purposes. Mm -hmm. So uh, as we are sitting here discussing, somebody at Equinor is updating something because something has happened. Mm -hmm. um, and another important part of this is ownership. We don't want ambition to action to be seen as a corporate control mechanism. We want this to be seen as the lines um, uh, kind of concept or tool or whatever for managing themselves or, or helping to manage themselves. Mm -hmm. And if that runs well, then the results at corporate level kind of uh, follow. So, so ownership here is, uh, is very important. That's why we said it's not mandatory to have an ambition to action. We have uh, 900 teams having an ambition to action, but we have not imposed it. They have an ambition to action because they feel it helps them in running their business. And, and that, that's the way it is. That's fabulous. But one of the things that uh, it strikes me that, you know, there are a lot of leaders out there who say, well, you know, that amount of transparency would be pretty frightening. You know, I, I don't want my people being able to access all these numbers. And at the front lines, the idea that your CEO might pop into your performance management tool at any moment, you know, for a lot of people, that's pretty scary. How, how do you combat that? Well, first of all, I mean, we, we um, uh, there is transparency because with a few exceptions of share sensitive or confidential information, all these ambition to actions are open for all employees. Wow. And that has two purposes. The main purpose is learning, right? We want people to learn from each other and be inspired for, uh, uh, from each other. So that's the main purpose. But there is also a small control purpose, right? Because, um, as I said, people can, can uh, uh, change uh, or update their own ambition uh, at any time, but um, uh, including targets, right? If your target has lost its meaning, impossible to achieve or a piece of cake. But if, uh, and we also say that, I mean, well, if you want to make a, a, a big change, you still need to have a talk with a level above. Small change, just inform at a suitable time. But of course, if such a change should be I shouldn't say a stupid one, but <laughs> not having the right ambition level or direction. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the level of should do, uh, do what they need to do and intervene. But again, I think the transparency here um, gives us that subtle control because there is no place to hide mm -hmm. the stupid ambition to action. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. So um, learning as the main, uh, main uh, purpose, but this, this uh, subtle control mechanism uh, that you know that people can watch. I don't think our CEO spends a lot of time kind of lurking in the corners of local <laughs> ambition to actions, but uh, and why should he? Um, I, I would rather say the opposite. I mean, people also take a look at the stuff further up to better understand strategy and uh, this is interesting, by the way. You know, the, all these uh, ERP software vendors, um, they, they all advertise about the great drill-down opportunities. Mm -hmm. You can sit at the head office and find out how many blue pencils were consumed in the Italian sales office last month. <laughs> why on earth should they? I mean, why, why don't these systems talk more about drilling up and, and see what's offset? Drill across and learn from others. Uh -huh. Now, it's all about drill-down, drill-down. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So your ambition to action is actually instrumented, right? You've got a, a, an online resource? Yes, yes, uh, we do have. And, and um, um, I was a bit nasty with, with the, uh, the big European systems here, but it's actually a global SAP uh, solution. And, and, uh, and, and credit to SAP for kind of, uh, it gives us not just one version of the truth, but also this transparency that would have been impossible uh, without. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think um, the Statoil example is so interesting, and we've got some interesting comments coming in from the question, questions, is, um, you know, I, I hear from people, oh, well, you could do that in a, in a consulting business, or you could do that in a business that didn't involve, you know, life-threatening situations. But, you know, Equinor, massive assets, massively dangerous, you know, <clears throat> offshore operations requiring incredible amounts of expertise and really deep, <clears throat> deep commercial and, and uh, scientific knowledge. Um, and, and, you know, my argument to people is always, if you can make it work there, nobody else has an excuse. 
right? So how do you, though, maintain the right um, level of control? Because, you know, I don't want pilots suddenly deciding on workforce experimentation mid-flight. You know, we don't want that. So how do you make that distinction between where there needs to be a very tightly controlled process and where it can be more experimental? Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, in the, in, the, in the operational area, of course, there has to be procedures. And, and I say you need to follow, there has to be compliance and so on. That's not what we are talking about. But, you know, as the, we want that operator at the same time as he's being compliant and opening the valves in the right, right uh, order, we would like him to think about, is there a better way of doing, doing this? So you need this balance in everybody's head about um, at the same time being compliant for today and thinking about the better way for, for, for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. The other way I want to say is that, you know, again, the word control came up, come up. And um, that's a word that we use a lot. And uh, that is what people are most afraid of losing when going on a beyond budgeting journey. That's the biggest concern. Mm-hmm. I often ask people, well, can you help me define what you mean with control? And after people have said cost control, a lot actually go quiet. They struggle with defining what they are so afraid of losing. Um, but if you, uh, if you go to Oxford Dictionary, uh, it, I mean, the, the, the popular version that tells you that it's basically about, I mean, here I think you see the two main assumptions be- behind traditional management coming out, because those two ma- main assumptions uh, are the following. Uh, number one, people can't be trusted. And second, the future is predictable and planable. And we are challenging both those assumptions because we think there's a lot of illusions of control uh, around, um, uh, around these two. Uh, and um, that is uh, actually one of the very few benefits of, of the pandemic uh, where we are, uh, um, that has hit us. Um, because the... We've had, had tough times in crisis before. If you take the finance crisis, that was a t- tough one. But that crisis only challenged that second assumption that the world is predictable and planable. But this one also challenged the first one. Trust, right? Because all the homework have shown that people actually can be trusted. A lot of companies have been forced to trust their employees, even if they maybe initially didn't want to. And guess what? It works. So I think both those uh, challenges or assumptions have taken a, a big hit uh, during this uh, pandemic. And that is, um, uh, that is good news. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the questions from Bogdan is uh, when you think about different scenarios for the future, how does that show up in your, um, I guess it would be in your uh, forecasting system? Mm. Yeah. Well, we do operate with scenarios. Uh, I mean, all, all the time we are looking at different uh, scenarios, but the, the, the most kind of thorough forecasting would obviously happen around uh, the scenario that, that we believe the, uh, the most in, uh, thinking about that as the expected uh, outcome. But we have definitely taken down the detail level in the forecasting. Um, one problem with forecasting is that it's often uh, done by people with an accounting background, mm-hmm. and they tend to bring their accounting mindset with them into forecasting. Mm-hmm. The, the mindset of uh, precision and detail and, and consolidation and everything needs to add, add up. And of course, look, I mean, that makes sense in accounting because you are looking backwards mm-hmm. and there's no uncertainty. But the moment you turn around and look at the future, there is uncertainty and you, can't, you have to leave behind that precision accounting mindset. You have to be comfortable with not everything adding up uh, with, uh, with uh, a very different granularity and, and, and so on. And that's, I, I think some, some people find that uh, difficult, but accounting and forecasting are two very different things. Mm-hmm. But with your system, and I think this comes back to the whole scenario idea, you can have a broad direction, but with your system, you can be much more flexible in how you respond to it. And I think people overlook that. You know, I think the way I would frame that is we, we overinvest in prevention and we underinvest in resilience. And, you know, the pandemic has made that abundantly clear that, you know, we, we have all these complex things in place to prevent bad things from happening. And then when something happens, we're, we're stretched too thin. There's no slack resources. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so a question has come up about budget gaming and budgeting, gaming and budgeting. So I'm sure some of that maybe still happens. Um, how do you, how do you approach that? Because I see it all the time. <laughs> you know, just- yeah, yeah. 
Well, first of all, um, when there is gaming, you have to you have to kind of go go behind and try to understand why there is gaming. Mm. And um, if there's gaming around target setting, well, very often the reason is found in the incentive system, mm. right? Uh, as one example. And so you have to kind of go something with the things that make people behave in ways they, they, they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, the separation helps, but I'm not saying it's eliminating uh, gaming, but we are at least limiting it to this target setting uh, discussion. Yeah. But one way to to get around that on target setting is to follow another beyond budgeting recommendation, namely to think in relative terms when you set targets. So we do that a lot on corporate level, on, on unit level, uh, constructing what we in Europe call league tables. I don't think you have that expression. You call it, uh, yeah, you call it, uh, Bob Kaplan, he once told me what, what, what the name was, but I forgot. Yeah, uh, standings, standings, or, yeah, yeah. standings or, or something. Right. But anyway, I mean, uh, one example, the, the, um, um, uh, the, the main financial metric at Equino level is um, how are we doing on uh, return on capital employed and shareholder return versus 12 other competitors. Mm -hmm. And the target, not the secret, is to be above average on both. Uh, as simple as that, evergreen targets. And when you apply this internally, for instance, between, between plants, uh, my experience is that <laughs> nobody likes to be laggards, right? <laughs> if you are discussing and negotiating a, a 29.2 targets, your target, you see the gaming, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to where do you aim for to be on compared to your peers, Mm -hmm. I have yet uh, to hear somebody saying, no, I'm perfectly fine down in this uh, lowest quartile, right? <laughs> so you're kind of triggering some... So it's a very simple uh, way of getting people to stretch without feeling stretched. And it is also a much more intelligent way of setting targets. I mean, take on, on Equiron level. This is robust against a high or low oil price. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If the oil price is high, it's high for everybody and vice versa. So, um, so that's one way of getting out uh, some of this gaming. Um, yeah. But there's always a reason behind, and that, that is the one you need to, to, to find. I think that's, that's such an important insight that we forget, you know, that people, I think it's the motivation behind the surface motivation yeah. that we always yeah. forget to look for. Yeah. 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 We, um, we tend to forget that it is the, very often it's the systems we create yeah. that creates this behavior that we, we don't want to see. And to change that, you shouldn't change people, you should change the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was Roger Martin um, who said, any system that's designed to behave in a way that isn't consistent with how humans behave is yeah. just doomed. <laughs> Which yeah. wise, wise word from a wise man. <laughs> yes, indeed. So one of the um, phrases, uh, Dehawk, I think, um, the former CEO of Visa, mm -hmm. said, that yeah. you cite in one of your articles, he said, simple, mm -hmm. clear purpose and principles give rise to complex, intelligent behavior. Complex rules and regulations give rise to simple, stupid behavior. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that, I'm going to get that printed somewhere. <laughs> no, no, also wise words. <laughs> one, one thing I'm personally very curious about is how do you manage the budgeting for innovation? And the motivation for that is I have any number of clients right now who are operators. You know, they they run the plant, they run the business, they run mm -hmm. everything with enormous precision. They, they're senior leaders, you know, have risen to the top by being operators. And I come in and I mm -hmm. talk about innovation and growth mm -hmm. and experimentation, and they look at me like I had two heads. <laughs> so I'm very curious how you manage that because it's a different discipline, right? It's a completely different way to behave that has to that has to live next to the operations. You know, I'm not saying the operations are unimportant. I'm saying there has to be this balance. Yeah. But, you know, uh, my reflection on innovation is that, uh, you know, in a way, everybody seems to love innovation when it comes to technology innovation mm -hmm. into products and services, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's wonderful. And uh, or every company is, is kind of heavily into it and want to be kind of leading edge in the forefront and better than everybody else. Wonderful. But when it comes to management innovation mm -hmm. that we are talking about, uh, exploring new ways of leading and managing, that's not great. That's scary, right? Kicking out the budget? Are you crazy? <laughs> right? And, and the consequence is that it's extremely crowded on that technology innovation arena because everybody is, is, is on that arena. Mm. On the management innovation arena, that is not yet a crowded place because it's, it's not scary. Mm. And that is great news for those brave companies who dare to explore also this kind of innovation because you can get 
just as much performance out of management innovation as you can from can get from technology innovation. Mm -hmm. And there are companies um, out there uh, like um, the Swedish bank Handelsbanken that yes. I'm talking about in, in, in the book, no budgets, uh, targets, bonus since 1970. They openly admit that we have no advantage in in our products and services as such. We find it in the in the way we lead and, and, and manage. Mm -hmm. And they've done extremely well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Are there, are there other companies that you would look to? Oh, there are many. And, and these days, you know, it's so, it's so, it's so great to see um, uh, many, many big companies now starting on, on, on fascinating uh, uh, management innovation journeys. Uh, uh, Roche, for instance, the Swiss uh, pharmaceutical company, a uh, great example, very exciting. Uh, but I have, I have a, a Norwegian small favorite it's um, an IT company called uh, Miles. Mm -hmm. um, the, the head of that uh, company, uh, Tom Georg Olsen, he, he, he wanted to become a nurse, but he discovered he couldn't stand blood, so he became an engineer instead. <laughs> <laughs> that would so, be an obstacle. <laughs> yes, that would be an obstacle. So he started his career in, in, a, in a big Norwegian company and got so fed up of the kind of uh, big system bureaucracy that he started his own an uh, IT uh, company, uh, and he said, I want to found this on very different principles. So extremely people-focused, no budgets, no targets. Their most important process is recruitment. Very simple philosophy. If we get it right at recruitment, the rest follows. <laughs> so when they recruit, they never take less than 10 references. And when management interviews, the whole interview is about the candidates' beliefs and values and attitudes. They don't talk IT at all. They leave that to, to, to colleagues on board. They can check for the IT competence. And if they say no, it doesn't matter what management is saying. And again, no budget. So if you work for Miles, you can buy whatever PC you want, as expensive as you want, replace it as often as you want. No PC budget. You can attend whatever seminar, course uh, you want, as often as you want, wherever in the world. No travel budgets, no training budgets. That sounds like an anarchy, but it isn't. Beyond the solid culture they get through the recruitment, they have a very simple control mechanism, transparency. Mm. When you have bought that PC, when you return from that training, you have to post on the internet what you did and the cost of it. And their only concern with that very simple self-regulating control mechanism is, could it be too effective? Right, because it is a very powerful uh, mechanism. And of course, again, the company is doing great, expanding into the Baltics, South Africa, India, applying the same model also in these places, by the way. It's so interesting. I was talking to the CEO of a very fast-growing startup um, about his decision-making uh, mechanism around travel. And so here's what happens. He, he might have three different flights booked for a, a conference, let's say, or a destination. And, you know, his controller looks at this and says, this is insane. You know, you're costing us all this money, these three flights. Do you know two of them are going to go unused? And the CEO responded. He said, well, yeah, but I'm driving that because one of the most scarce resources this company has is my time. And if I can get a meeting with a critical client on Monday afternoon, that means I can fly out Monday evening. But if I can't get that critical meeting until Tuesday morning, then I can't take the Monday flight. But it was fascinating to me, the logic of let's look at what's best for the business versus why are you taking three flights when one would do? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Which I just thought that was a mindset, right? Around, around that kind of judgment. Um, Aaron Meyer talks about the uh, culture at Netflix and I think many of those principles apply here, which is find the best talent you can find. Uh, you know, they're the experts. Mm. Trust them to bring their best to the mm. job and get out of their way, <laughs> you know, which I think is it's easy to say, but it's mm. very hard to do in practice. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, this is not simple, right? Mm. It is much better. But the old stuff it is much simpler. I mean, including the, the detailed uh, annual cost budgets, uh, especially for managers who don't like to make decisions. Mm -hmm. because uh, the more detailed your budget is, the, the more less decisions you have to make. And if some of those are unpopular, you mm -hmm. even have somebody to blame. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I keep telling people that um, you, you, this, this is more, it takes more competence from everybody in, involved. Mm -hmm. But the results are so much better. And it is so, it's such a 
completely different place to to, to work. Um, companies taking this 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 journey, so you become uh, it's not just the bottom line that improves. I mean, you become more attractive as an employer. Mm-hmm. Engagement increases, and uh, kind of all the things that so many companies struggle with. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Equinor has done, um, which I find quite remarkable, is a huge push into very new areas, renewables, space, uh, other things. And I remember I was in Stavanger, um, goodness, when did, when did Eldar come into the role? It was, it was some years ago, so. Yeah, yeah. 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I remember he, he asked me to stay on an extra day to talk about the difference between investing for the core and investing in these innovations. And my impression is he really implemented those ideas, that, that he implemented this way of doing both. Um, and I, I have to think that caused some tensions between the operating people and the people out there doing wind farms or whatever it was. H- how do you navigate those unavoidable, you know, it's tensions. I mean, it's not negative. It's just, you know, there are some people who run in straight lines, as Safi Bakal <clears throat> call, calls them the soldiers. And then there are some people who are like, let's invent the future. How do you bridge those? <clears throat> Actually, that hasn't been much of an issue or much of a tension because I think everybody in Equino knows that the future will be low carbon mm-hmm. and we want to be part of it. Okay. So, so this, I mean, this, this simply has to happen and it is happening. Uh, and, um, uh, but there has to be a transition. It cannot ho- happen overnight. And the way I see it when it comes to, because sometimes our industry and, and um, um, different environmental groups are kind of seen as being in, really in conflict but I think the only I think we agree on almost everything um, as I see it uh, maybe the only difference is how long will oil and gas still need to be part of the energy mix before it can be completely phased out mm-hmm. so I, I think maybe we think it, it might take somewhat longer whether we like it or not compared to what some other people think so uh, but um, but it's, it's it, again back to the topic of management innovation here I mean having having these kind of management models that we, uh, or such a management model, is also something that helps you on, on these kind of business uh, journeys. So, uh, mm-hmm. And do you, do you make a big distinction between the job of somebody who's exploring new things and the job of someone who's basically operating? No, it's, uh, no, definitely not. It's not, not been an issue. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm going to have to spend more time studying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great company. It's a great company. It yeah. really is. It really is. Um, and and uh, at the time I was there, um, Aldar was still in the acting role. Yeah. And then in your book, you describe uh, a wonderful moment a few months later, yeah. I think, where he said, well, you know, maybe I like this job. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And he took it. Yeah, yeah. And he did. So, uh, yeah, he did. Yeah. So, um, shall you go ahead? Yeah, just at one point in time, I have to talk about my, my traffic message. For you but do? Was, I was going to ask let, you. Let, okay, okay. Let's do it at a suitable time here. <laughs> I just love it. So. Uh, now or? Yeah. Okay, please. okay. Well, uh, you know, I mean, the, the whole, uh, everything we are, have been talking about here is about performance, right? How do you get the best possible performance defined in the right way? And and um, there is another setting that we often experience where we also want good performance, and that is traffic, right? Um, when we are driving. I, and I, I simply hate traffic jams. Um, and by the way, I never understood why they call it the rush hour. <laughs> there was no rush at all. Those cars are standing dead still. But, you know, there's so much I don't understand. But uh, anyway, I think traffic authorities want the same. And what you often meet in traffic crossings is the traffic light, right? Um, regulating when you have to, when you can drive and, and uh, when you can stop. And imagine a traffic light um, that has no sensors, right? No technology. Um, the one who is in control in that situation is the one who programmed that light. And that person would not be in the situation when you sit there waiting. So we have a management model where the manager is absent and decisions are also based on somewhat outdated information about how traffic might develop here. But again, the best of intentions. But fortunately, there is a very different um, uh, solution, the, um, the roundabout or the traffic circle, that some people call it. Uh, exactly the same purpose, but a very different uh, solution and very different answers to, to, um, uh, to who is in control and, and what decisions are based on, right? Because in the in the roundabout, then we as drivers are in control. And 
the information we use to make our decisions is what we see here and now, real-time information. So very different answers to these same questions. Um, so it's interesting to compare these two ways of, 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 of managing. And um, when it comes to which one is most uh, efficient, it's proven scientifically that the roundabout is not just more efficient, it's also safer. Mm -hmm. But of course, it is also more difficult. As we talked about, it takes more competence compared to the, the, uh, the, uh, the traffic light. Um, I was dead scared when I, should, uh, when I had my driver's license and I should kind of enter my first roundabout. So, um, um, and last but not least, it's also relevant to talk about values in this setting, right? Um, at Equinor, we are trying hard to be a values-based company. We are not alone, uh, but we are trying hard. It's very important for us. And the opposite, you can maybe a bit simplified call a, a rules-based company. Right. And this traffic light is a good example of rules-based management. Mm -hmm. Red is stop and uh, green is drive. We can always discuss that color in the middle. Um, but beyond that, very simple rules-based system. And if there is a value set among drivers waiting for that green light, which is about me first, I don't care about the rest. That mindset is not a big problem in front of that light. But in the roundabout, me first, I don't care about the rest. It's a big problem because here we are much more dependent on everybody involved sharing this uh, common positive purpose or wish of wanting this to flow well. We have to help each other. We have to interact with people in a very different uh, uh, way than in front of that light. So the roundabout is about, for me, it's about self-regulation. Mm -hmm. which is such an important uh, word when it comes to, to, to management innovation because, because people can be trusted, because the future is not predictable, you need more self-regulating management models. And that is what Beyond Budgeting is about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that concept, self-regulating. And, and you know, similar to, to Gary Hamill, what he'll say is um, that, uh, you know, people know best how to get yeah. the results in a certain situation. <clears throat> the best you can do is create some guide rails and, and, yeah, and then them to do that. Yeah. So where do people start? Um, you know, where, let, 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 I mean, let's say my, my, my friends in this very, you know, operationally focused mm. company, what, what, how would you get them started on, on this journey? And you must get this question all the time. So you have yeah, the Beyond yeah. Budgeting Roundtable, and there's mm. a lot to be learned from the companies that are part of that. You do events, yeah. right, with yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah, we do, we do. And of course, that's, that's, uh, we always recommend um, companies to come along and, and talk with other companies having done this. But, but more generally, I mean, uh, and this is not a very unique way of getting started. I mean, any change needs a case for change. So you need, you need people to understand more of the problems here than that this is a very time-consuming process. They need to kind of understand that this is a, there are systemic, serious systemic problems here. Um, which also represents a paradox. And I'm talking about everything from the, uh, the gaming to the outdated assumptions to, to uh, hitting the budget as being ill-suited for defining good performance and, and so on and so on. Those are important problems, but they are symptoms of a huge problem, which is also a paradox. Because here you have the process, we're talking pretty old management technology. Mm -hmm. Budgeting was invented by James O. McKinsey roughly 100 years ago, right? Really? Yes. I didn't and know that. I, I, didn't, I, I, I never met Mr. McKinsey, but I, I don't think he was an evil person. I think he had the best of intentions. He wanted to help organizations to perform better. And I'm sure he did 100 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago. But today, this way of leading, this way of managing is doing the opposite. It has become more of a barrier than a support for getting out the best possible performance. And the more you can get people to understand that, the easier any <coughs> change is afterwards. Then afterwards, it depends on what is the change appetite. If you're only kind of initially in it for the finance process improvements, as I talked about, around budgeting, well, start with the separation and see where it takes you. But we have had many cases of CEOs understanding it all and wanting it all uh, and going from the almost the, the big bang for, for, uh, from day one. But, um, but there has to be a, a, a case for change and the separation is a safe place if that is what you're, you're, you're after. Um, the other good thing is that there are today so many companies starting on this journey that there are many more to learn from. And we can also see a certain peer pressure building up. 
companies realizing that, well, this is not a fad. This is, I keep hearing it over and over again. And, and uh, yeah, of course, I mean, it's, it's better to have an, in, an internal driver for change than such an external one. But uh, sometimes that is what you need. And it's happening a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I read an article on, on Equinor, which was saying one of the big reasons for the name change and the sort of presenting to the world a really different face of what had been a pretty classic oil and gas you know, mm. firm uh, was to attract talent, that it was the younger people that didn't initially rate working for a company like Equinor is in their consideration set. Uh, and I think that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. That is an important point. And um, Beyond Budgeting and Ambition for Action actually worked for us in that sense already before that strategy change. Uh, for many years, we've been the most uh, popular uh, employer among students in, in, in Norway, and it keeps continuing mm-hmm. uh, also because of this strategy change here. But you can find that's, that's also uh, it's one of the benefits of being, being um, uh, bold on management innovation. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are fascinated. We, we see in the, in the US, I mean, uh, a lot of people want to work for us because mm-hmm. we operate in a different way than most of our competitors. Well, and the folks at Netflix would make the same point. They talk about talent mm. density as, as a real driver for uh, mm. their own success. Mm. How do yeah. you deal with the tricky issue, though, of performance management? So, you know, you presumably someone set their target. They're just not making it. You coach them. There's training. What happens when you just can't make it work? <laughs> mm. yeah. Well, first of all, I'm very sensitive to words, and I actually don't like the label performance management that you okay. just used. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, no. But I mean, the reason is that uh, um, I find it a bit negative. Right? Mm-hmm. If we don't manage your performance, there will be no performance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's some illusion of control into it as well, that um, I think our ability to manage people's performance is actually somewhat limited compared mm-hmm. to what you often like to think. So, so uh, but it is a label that fits very nicely when we talk about the, the traffic light. That is performance management. Okay. The roundabout is about some, something else. That is about creating conditions for great performance to take place. It's about enabling performance and not managing performance. Mm-hmm. So performance management is actually a label we are trying to get rid of mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the company, even if uh, we haven't completely su- succeeded yet. But back to your question, I mean, independent of what we call it, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, when, when performance do not uh, meet the standards, it, it needs to be, of course, something has to, be, has to be, be, be done. And this is not about being soft in any case on, on, uh, on anything. Um, uh, including bad performance, but also including trust. Um, because, you know, the only thing you know if you show trust in an organization is that someone will abuse it, mm-hmm. right? And in Equinor, it has happened, it will happen again. And the easy thing to do when it happens is, of course, to tell the organization that this trust thing doesn't work. Just look at what happens here and here. And then that mail is issued with everybody back to the old way and, and uh, putting everybody in jail because somebody did something wrong. That's the easy thing to do. It doesn't require much leadership. The right thing to do is to take that very firm talk with those involved and let it have the necessary consequences. Right? And the same goes for performance. Of course, you need to, to deal with, 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 with bad performance. But, but sometimes you see... You see the response to bad performance being not dealing with those individuals or those teams, but doing something with the total system because it didn't work for somebody. Right? Mm-hmm. So again, the, 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 yeah. um, but anyway, it's, um, I don't think we, we struggle just as much as anybody else um, on that challenging issue of how do you deal with non-satisfactory performance. And we are not saying that beyond budgeting solves it for you, mm-hmm. but what beyond budgeting does is it creates a better definition of performance that you can judge actual performance against, right? Mm-hmm. So you can at least have that discussion on the right basis right. instead of saying that you didn't hit your budget number of 
<laughs> right. Gotcha. Yeah. One of um, my, my, my business heroes is a guy named Gary Ridge, who runs the WD-40 uh, company. And he co-authored a wonderful book, which is called uh, Don't Grade My Paper, Help Me Get an A. And that really <laughs> influences. <laughs> wonderful. Is that wonderful? <laughs> wonderful, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that philosophy of managing because mm. it, it well, first of all, creates joint responsibility for the outcome mm. between the person and the, their, their manager. Um, but secondly, it's a philosophy, which says, you know, my job is not to sit in judgment at the end of some performance period. My job is to really uh, help you do better at, at what you're doing. Yeah. And then so I think the, that, the, the, the enabling world kind of works better than yeah. the, the management world as such. Yeah. Uh-huh. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. So one of the things as you're talking that it makes me think of is you must have pretty high levels of what Amy Edmondson would call psychological safety. You know, the, the ability to say uncomfortable things without a fear of being punished for it. Again, I think that goes back to uh, Equinor as, as my employer. Um, one of the values we have is that you should challenge accepted truth. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that is what we have, that's what we're trying to do all the time. And uh, uh, I'm not saying we haven't, don't have heated discussions, but uh, we can have those discussions. Um, and the interesting thing on these discussions is that you get braver along the way. Mm. I mean, one example, of course, back in 2005, kicking out the budget was a huge discussion. Uh, today, it's a, it's a non-issue. I don't think anybody is talking about going back. But today, we can have another discussion that we couldn't have had five years, 10 years ago. And that's around targets, as I hinted on. Because I think, and this is a topic on its own, but I think the business world is addicted to target setting. And the belief is that unless we set targets, people don't know where to go, direction, and you can't evaluate people. And I would challenge both those, um, those assumptions um, because there are many ways of setting direction, right? You can do it through words. You can do it through in the range of towards or, or better or whatever. And when it comes to evaluating performance, then I think we forget that when we sit in the fall the year before and, and, and are discussing what shall that annual target be, right? We are typically doing it under a lot of uncertainty, right? There's a lot of fog um, and should it be uh, 32 or 28? But, and we have to conclude, and it becomes 29.2. And that becomes the answer that everything shall be judged against. And if the purpose is to evaluate performance, at which point in time do we have best knowledge about what was actual good performance? Mm-hmm. Was that upfront with all that fog? Or is it afterwards when you can look at the tailwind and headwind and changes in assumptions and everything? Mm-hmm. And that was a leading question, right? Mm-hmm. So, so my point is that um, I'm not saying we shouldn't have targets and I have no problems with targets that people set for themselves. But uh, again, both Handelsbank and Miles operate very successfully without targets. So it's just an ex- example that we should question everything we do and we should go ask, what's the purpose of that, what we do? And is there a better way of fulfilling that purpose? Mm-hmm. And very often the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So another example of a, a, a culture where it is a heated discussion and uh, there are still some strange looks, yes, but, but uh, we can have that discussion. So we'll see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. And how do you get that? Because, I mean, I, I, again, I've got a lot of clients who don't feel their people are empowered to bring them bad news. And in my most recent book, I actually highlight this as a major reason for blind spots that you know, when I look at companies, for example, that have been surprised by a major inflection point, someone always knew. I mean, there's always somebody two, three <clears throat> down, levels down somewhere yeah. in operations that said, oh yeah, you know, we saw that coming from a mile away. Yeah. Um, and yet the people around the conference table at headquarters <laughs> don't. <laughs> you know? yeah. So how do you, I, I would imagine the ambition to action process sort of embeds a bit of that getting out to the edges and seeing what's going on mentality in it. Mm. But it's, uh, if you don't have psychological safety, again, there is a reason for it that you have to dig behind and find it. Mm. And sometimes you can find the answer as, as a CEO, you can find the answer in the response you gave last time somebody came with bad news, mm-hmm. right? Because we know what the classical response is. Right? And, and we know what happens next time that I mean, people don't dare to speak up and so on. So, it's, um, so specifically on forecasting, we really encourage this. Um, uh, there is not a bad forecast. Right? Uh, the fact that the forecast 
is, is, is showing bad news does not make it a bad forecast. Mm -hmm. The only bad forecast we have are the ones that come too late or that mm -hmm. contains um, this, this conscious bias, right? Those are bad forecasts. Mm -hmm. uh, but you are back to executive behaviors yeah. that, that uh, can really take things in this direction or in that direction. Um, and management innovation, that's, that's really where we need to be thinking. So we're, oh, nearly at time, um, that flew by. So for those of you that have put questions in the chat, if we didn't get to answer them during the course of the conversation, we'll capture them and, and come back to you uh, afterward. Um, so where should people go to learn more? Uh, I mean, obviously, we've got the book, great book, you know, very, yeah. very full of wonderful anecdotes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's the first book I've ever read on budgeting that actually captured my interest. <laughs> because, because it's not about budgets. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So where so, can people uh, learn more? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, check out the, the, uh, the Beyond Budgeting Roundtable, our website, bbrt.org. Um, it was down this morning, unfortunately, but don't give up. Um, and um, uh, we, uh, again, uh, in a post-pandemic world, we will uh, revert back to meeting in, 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 in person. We typically do that in, in, in Europe, in London, uh, uh, twice a year. Uh, and uh, right now we are trying to compensate with a number of online uh, shorter webinars. So you'll find more information on the, on the website. Um, uh, Google it, uh, check it out. And I think you will be surprised about how much is... Uh, happening uh, out there. Yeah. And, and think, um, that's just super uh, and, encouraging that there's all this wisdom out there that we can easily, yeah. easily tap into. Yeah, yeah. And, and my, my final message here is that, you know, the things that we have been talking about today, it, it will happen. It will happen. I don't care if it will be called beyond budgeting or business agility or whatever, it will happen. And I'm convinced that in, in 15, 20 years time, when we sit and look back at what was mainstream management in 2020, we will smile, even have a laugh, just like we today smile about the days before the internet, right? And, and how long is that? And as organizations, we can choose to be vanguards, early movers, and get the true competitive advantage, or we can choose to be dragged into this as one of the last ones. I think that is a pretty simple choice. That is inspiring. Well, thank you so much uh, for giving us an hour of your time. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you all of you for visiting. Um, if you want to learn more about me, I'm at RitaMcGrath.com. Uh, and uh, I'm also on all the usual social places where you and I connect quite often in a not, not in person environment. So thank you. Have a great weekend, everyone. And bye-bye. Uh,